Hello and welcome to our Under the Lights 2019-2020 Premier League season review episode in a year that Covid threatened to take the headlines. We'll be asking the question, were Liverpool that good? We'll be looking at the relegation battle and how that unfolded as the season went on. And how did VAR work in its debut season in the Premier League? We'll also be wrapping up the episode by asking each other, what were our five key points of the season? Without further ado, my name's Callum Wilson. My name is Tom Murray, and this is the Under the Lights Premier League Season Review. So, Callum, we finally reached the end. A long old season. Coronavirus did threaten to take the headlines away from a Liverpool side that were just unbelievable. Yeah, what better place to uh, to start than with um, with the Premier League winners and, and record setters? Um, first ever Premier League title for Liverpool, which is uh, really amazing to think, considering that it's been going for almost thirty years. Um, they won it earlier than any other side. They threatened to win. Uh, literally almost every game up until that point only a draw with Man United quite early on in the season and then that that first loss of the season just prior to uh, to the Covid disruption against Watford what performance from Liverpool uh, Jurgen Klopp's side really running away with it uh, they took the lead uh, in, the, in the Premier League early and and they never really looked back and just stretched the lead further and further and um and questions being asked as to whether or not they're up there with the uh, with the best sides ever to grace the Premier League. Yeah, they were like an absolute juggernaut, just smashing teams aside. And but I say smashing because they kill they they beat them with sheer dominance without actually thrashing them. They would pick up results. They would. It wasn't necessarily four five nils, although there were some of those along the way. It was just consistently beating teams, even when. I mean, at times, people were saying that they underperformed in some matches and got away with it. I think towards the end of the season, especially after the break where it was already won, we saw the weaknesses of the Liverpool side from the rotation, that there are weaknesses there, but it looked, for all the money, like they were going to be the next uh, Invincibles. Yeah, I mean, they just couldn't be stopped. You know, I, I, I wouldn't really read into as much of their late-season form as some people like to, especially those... Maybe fans of the Invincibles or the or the City teams uh, of the last few seasons, but yeah, when Liverpool needed the points, not many teams could stop them. Strangely enough, one of the teams that could stop them ended up being relegated to the Championship. But only once Liverpool had, had sealed the deal and got that trophy and had their party was anyone really a match for them. And that's and that's not because anyone was good enough to be a match for them. That's because Liverpool took their eye off the ball, went on their holidays and didn't really care for records. And I don't think that should go against them when we look back in history at whether they won the best sides. Because up until the point that they no longer needed to win games, they were literally unstoppable. I mean, you can go through the entire team um, and discuss why that player should be uh, in the team of the season or, or probably five, six, seven of them, why they should be player of the season. Um, they were unbelievable. Man City, who have got 198 points in the last two seasons, never had a sniff of the Premier League trophy this season. And I think Liverpool are an absolute credit and, and fair play to them. After last season, after they 
them and Man City were, were almost perfect last season and they managed to um, to lose out uh, by two points. I mean, what, what did they get, 98 points and they missed out on the uh, on the trophy? For them to, to they won the, the Champions League, but for them to then come back, we thought perhaps they might have thought, you know what, we're never going to be able to get past this city side. We've got 98 points and we still haven't managed to win it. Thought that might have affected them. Um, thought that they might not come back to that form of last season, but actually they they eclipsed it. Remember last season we were saying how there were games where they um, they just nicked the win and they got they were very good at getting last minute goals and the and the pressure. But this this season they uh, they like you said they dominated sides and um, they were winning games early on. Yeah, they made it look so easy, and the fact was that as you said they were getting. They're, whilst they weren't thrashing teams, they were getting their leads early on in the games. And then at that point, the match was won and it was just a case of playing for time, playing it around, maybe grab another goal in the second half or whatever. And they never really looked like they struggled too much. And in the games that they maybe were slightly off, they already had the lead at that point and a comfortable lead. So they were able to just hold out for, for the three points. And I'm going to say hold out, just keep it in possession, just calm the game down. And it was remarkable, I think, that they did that without making any real signings. They didn't in they they started with the same squad that they had for last season, and even I mean, you look at all of their players and you think each one of them could make it into the team of the year. And they even had Roberto Firmino, who, for my in my opinion, was under firing as a striker. He wasn't. He only scored what one two goals at Anfield. Not many goals away from home. Yet he was leading the line pretty much every game, and they still won the league at a canter by some some distance, even with a number nine that wasn't scoring on a consistent basis. Yeah, well, I think it's unfair, really, though. To traditionally, number nine should be the, the one scoring the goals. But if Roberto Firmino doesn't play in that team, then um, then Mane and Salah don't score the goals that they score, and uh, and maybe Liverpool don't. I don't want to say don't win the league because they won it by a lot of points, but don't win it so convincingly. I don't think there are many players that you, that Liverpool fans certainly would replace as their number nine. You could put players up front like Harry Kane, for instance, who will score more goals than Firmino, but it will take away from the other two players, those inside forwards and Mane and Salah. So I, I think, yeah, to score... Uh, well, he only scored at Anfield on the final day of the season. Up until then, he hadn't scored a home goal. And that is under firing by any stretch of the imagination, whether you're dropping in deep to set players up or not. But he was um, he was one of the top scorers away from home. And, um, and yeah, I think I think they wouldn't change a single player from their season because they all played in a, in a specific way and, and in a system that works for them and works for Jurgen Klopp. And it was, um, it, like you said, it was... Uh, it was a, a machine, really. It was just a well-oiled machine. Everyone knew their jobs. You know, the guys working in midfield and then those flair players and, and especially the full-backs who were... It was always about the front of three, but I think the full-backs were probably the most impressive part of that side. Um, it begs the question then, Tom, where do they fit in the discussion of the all-time greats uh, in the Premier League? You, know, you, you often hear the treble sides of, of Man United in... Uh, in in 1999, you've got the 2004 Invincibles, uh, the back-to-back winners when Jose turned up at Chelsea, and then obviously the, the Man City Centurions. Where do Liverpool fit in? 
That's a really difficult question to answer because their team is phenomenal. And I think they can definitely be up there as one of, as maybe like the top three, because like I said, you can't really read too much into the end of season form because they'd already won the league at that point. There was no reason to, um, to, to really bust a gut. Man City still, I think, getting breaking that 100 points. Liverpool could have done that, but they didn't. Arsenal unbeaten an entire season. I think they're up there as one of the greats, but I don't think that they are quite getting top spot. For me, I think that still rests with the Arsenal side of 2004, just for not losing a single game, league game in that season. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, I think we'll look back at Liverpool and all we'll see is 99 points, so they weren't as good as the Centurions, which I think is unfair. I mean, they don't have a fancy nickname. They don't have the Invincibles. They don't have the Centurions. You know, they didn't win the the big treble. Um, and I think it's unfair, really, because they were the team that won it the earliest you could possibly do it. And I think that is hugely impressive. Yeah, they managed to drop five points before lockdown when it, when it was won. And, and I think when Liverpool should be judged this season, it should be at the point when they needed the points and they needed the wins. And I don't think another side in the history of the Premier League was as relentless and as focused and as pretty much as lethal. They were ruthless going through. That's the side, that's the best word for them. They were ruthless. They were, it was almost like a, when you when you're playing a game of FIFA or football manager and you and the setting you've got on is too easy and you're thinking you know what this isn't realistic and winning every single game easily but they were actually doing that um, and and what's scary is their side is young and it'll be really interesting to see um, how they how they go from here you know can they possibly improve can they win more can they win more trophies I mean I always put Man United's treble at the top because you, know, you can go a whole season without Without, uh, without losing, but drawing 12 games and only winning one competition. If you can get 100 points but not win the Champions League, you know, Man United spread their resources across all the competitions they're in and they won them all. But that is a, probably a discussion for another day. We mentioned there that Liverpool won it at a canter early on. Um, they did, although they won it in the least amount of games, they're probably the earliest and the latest winners of the Premier League because this season, uh, unfortunately for Liverpool, they'll probably be overshadowed by um, the most unique set of circumstances to ever affect uh, the Premier League. And that was, of course, COVID-19, which has affected all of us, uh, still is right now. But such a strange Premier League season where it goes from August through to March, and then all of a sudden there are three months whereby nothing is happening, and we have to squeeze all the games in right at the end, and still doing so with European football, still trying to find the way into next season. We won't go into drastic detail on it, but it has to be mentioned because the 2019-2020 season will be remembered as the season of, of the coronavirus. Yeah, well, we hope that it's the only season... In for, for the next many, many years that will have that sort of impact from a, a virus, a disease, or, or, or any reason um, that would be affect, affect people globally. We, want it, we hope it is unique and it stays that way for a long, long time. But still, it's been really, really strange, especially 
that uniqueness of not having any fans for the last nine games or so. And it looks like that's the way it's going to continue just for the time being until any changes to government guidelines. And it affected teams. And we'll go on to it more about how it affected teams after the break. But it will certainly go down as one of the certainly the longest season and one of and one of the strangest yeah you're right obviously the, the fans is the other thing there the were two main things the fact that there was a void for uh, three months not just of football and life uh, where the Premier League wasn't happening we didn't know if it was going to happen as we'll talk about voiding it Liverpool maybe not winning it Leeds maybe not getting promoted but then the, the, the lack of fans and I think really the Premier League and the government were quick to shoot these uh, these companies down when they make decisions that maybe aren't popular but I think the way in which they handled the return of football with the testing looking after the players behind closed doors making sure that it was all done in a, in a way whereby Everyone was safe, but also we had a, a full stop at the end of, of this season. Um, and also for the fans and and the, uh, the general public for abiding by that and not coming back and not trying to make any issue of it. I think uh, I think it was handled actually really well. The TV, uh, TV companies giving the free, free-to-air games, all of these things, I think um, actually I think they handled it uh, really well and they, sh- they should all be commended for it. Oh, absolutely. And it gave fans a whole plethora of access to Premier League football. And, you, you know, they it's something that they didn't have to do. Like they, These are pay-for uh, subscriptions and they could have easily maybe not say you have to keep paying for it, but maybe reduce their prices. But to make it free to, to wear for, uh, for fans just to maybe watch a couple of games for their club before the end of the season was really, really good. And it sort of felt like a real team effort. And um, at the end, of it, I mean, obviously for some supporters, maybe disappointed by the way that their team's form was after, after lockdown. But it seemed for, especially for the neutral and for most fans, that it was a it turned out to be a good summer of football. I mean, it's still going with champion with the Champions League. Yeah, that's on BT. It is a good showcase of what can be achieved, and maybe going forward there can be more games that are free to wear. Considering that it's likely that we're not going to have a full capacity stadium for, um, well, for um, an unconfirmed amount of time at the moment. So Cam, we've talked about uh, the top of the table. Let's go down to the bottom of the league. Three teams that have gone down, Bournemouth, Watford, Norwich. Are they? Are you surprised by any of those teams to have gone down? Or is there something that at the beginning of the season you thought, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too shocked if, uh, if they were in the bottom three come the, come the end? I think, um, I think the way you look back at it now, none of them are a surprise because we've just seen that Premier League season, seen how poor all three sides have been. However, I had a little listen to our predictions at the beginning of the season um, and we will be looking over those in uh, in a future episode. But you have to say that actually, okay, Norwich were a side that came up, so they were in some books to go back down again, although they came up as champions and they were really convincing and I thought they were going to push on. Watford and especially Bournemouth I don't think many sides saw going down. At the beginning of the season, I think um, Bournemouth were being tipped to maybe even break into the top half, uh, be better than they had been any other season. Didn't happen for them. And often is the case with um, with relegated sides. 
there's a question mark as to why that was and Bournemouth fans will be able to tell you better than we will but something went wrong and uh, and it just got to a point where they just weren't finding any character they weren't finding any answers they seemed to run out of run out of ideas and what had been working so well for them for so many seasons wasn't getting them any points whatsoever and with Bournemouth I think they had it last season for a bit where they went on that run where they um, I think they were doing really well and they went on a, a run of a long time without winning they did the same in the middle of this season but yeah they just never recovered it and uh, and they seemed to be turning the corner but it was too little too late uh, with those with the, you know, with like the win on the last day of the season for instance and that win against Leicester uh, Watford are another one Watford are one where we expected them probably to finish safe you know 13th, 14th, 15th, somewhere around there. Um, they, got, they were FA Cup finalists last season, albeit they got hammered. They were FA Cup finalists. You know, they've been in the in the Premier League for quite a long time now. And although they've flirted, they've never really been in that much trouble in terms of relegation. But they got rid of the manager first casualty of the season really early um, and ended up with four managers over the season. And, and that's the way the Watford hierarchy have gone. Uh, since they took over the club, really, and um, and you're not, that's not a platform for continued success. So I, I wouldn't have picked any of those three sides to go down. In fact, I didn't pick any of those three sides to go down at the beginning of the season. Uh, spoiler, but I'm not surprised at the end of it. I think they were the right three teams to go down. It could have been it was three out of those, those three in Aston Villa, and actually the relegation fight with Liverpool having won the title so early. Uh, the relegation fight brought much of the excitement for the, uh, the post-lockdown era and that kind of final few games. Yeah, it did. And the relegation battle was uh, really quite enthralling. I remember on the last day, you know, watching the uh, watching all the goals go in, um, just thinking which side is actually going gonna to going to survive here. I think those three, those three sides, the least one, uh, I mean, the same as you, the least I'm surprised about is Norwich because, yeah, you know, they're a team coming up from the championship. There's always... As well as you perform in the championship, you, they often struggle on being at least in and around the relegation zone. Bournemouth and Watford, I uh, I was especially surprised about though because I think individually they have really good players, and obviously it didn't work out for them. I think Bournemouth were incredibly unlucky this season, especially with injuries. They went through that torrid time where I think they had to field their entire second string at one point for a few games. They were just missing Ake, they were missing Wilson, they were just missing. And David Brooks as well, really key players, creative players. And, you know, they just they didn't get the rub of the green. For Watford, I was surprised because, again, individually, they have good players. But I think not it was a long time coming, but I think it was only a matter of time before ageing squad, lack of consistency with management, um, underperforming creative players such as Roberto Perea. Saar didn't. Saar was their only real bright spark, as it were. But there's not much you can do on your own when you're creating chances if you don't have players that are getting on the end of them. So in that sense, I think not that they were going to get relegated, but a case of they were going to be in and around a relegation battle before too long. It was going to they were going to be involved in that, and I think that this season obviously was just the season that 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 came about. And whilst Pearson did have the new manager bounce. It was a bit like it was a bit like Bournemouth in the sense of the damage had already been done. They had too much to recover at that point, and 
once that honeymoon period ended because they did pick up quite a few points under Pearson and it looked for all the money like they were going to be a case of they've started bottom of the league but they're going to make a miraculous escape and they should be fine and fine and high and dry by the end of the season but it just turned out to be too much for them and then that downturn in form sucked them in once again and they never quite recovered and I think you know a key a key moment for for them was the was the West Ham capitulation in sort of the battle that whoever won that game was essentially safe and Watford just did not turn up. I think that West Ham surprised me in the sense of being down there in and around that area. I mean, we'll, t- we'll look at our predictions in another episode and we're looking forward to bringing it up to you. But re- the relegation battle it's, as a whole, I think West Ham were the most surprising team for me to be in and amongst that relegation battle itself after the way that they invested the summer before, spent 40 million on the likes of Fournals, um, Haller as well. You know, they brought in some quality players. Um, they've already got Anderson, uh, they've got Diop in defence. I mean, they have a really, like individually, they're really good. Their team should be challenging up towards the top end of the table in terms of, well, maybe top half, Not obviously not for any title. But I was really, <laughs> I was just really surprised that they, they found themselves down there. And I think with West Ham, that's something their supporters have come to expect in a way because as much money as they put in, it just seems to be typical West Ham to um, not form anywhere near the quality that they've got. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to touch something, uh, touch something that you said with um, with Watford, and I think just spot on. It was, it was something they had coming, and I think uh, not not many Premier League fans of other sides will have much. Um, much empathy with with them, not necessarily fans, but the hierarchy for um, continually dismissing managers. And of course, it was after that capitulation against West Ham, with only a couple of games left, that uh, they decided to um, to part ways with Nigel Pearson, which seemed a very odd decision. But actually, I remember at the beginning of last season, my prediction was that the first manager to go would be Javi Gracia, and that Watford uh, would be. Um, in the relegation zone come the end of the season and they they proved me wrong in having a, a, a quite remarkable season 365 days later they they do exactly what I thought they would have done the season before except I I thought after last season that they'd be okay so it just goes to show that, that you know there is it's so hard to predict anything in the Premier League and and also you're predicting from the beginning of the season where so many changes come in, uh, managerial changes and, and, and all sorts of things. With with West Ham, okay, let's go let's go on to our sort of underachievers and then um, and then our overachievers. Uh, you mentioned West Ham. You and I both thought that they were going to be a real force finally in the Premier League. They've threatened to kind of do so with signings of, of players like Anderson in previous seasons, and they spent money on on. And uh, he looks like he was going to be the answer to to West Ham fans' prayers for that number nine, that big number nine up front that they've managed to avoid for so many seasons with the likes of Andy Carroll, Colton Cole, you can get in someone like Shamak, for instance. And this guy, after his time in Frankfurt, looked like he was going to be an answer. Going forward, just looked like he had so many options. But actually, none of them worked out or haven't so far. Four nails was a passenger. Haller didn't offer what they thought he was going to offer. And defensively, they were poor as well. I think sometimes Fabianski keeps them in the Premier League, to be honest with you. So I, th- I think looking forward to next season, 
I think we'll have to maybe start reining it in on exactly what West Ham have got here because maybe they've got a team on paper, but it just doesn't project onto the pitch. And actually, if you remember, they started the season with Premier League winning manager in, in Pellegrini. Now they've got Moyes. That's a drastic change in philosophy. And David Moyes did actually a very good job to keep up a side that had a lot of flair players when he bases his, his game on on shutting teams out. So so he did well coming in there. He wasn't a popular choice. Other underachievers, Arsenal, spring to mind immediately. I mean, we've touched on the three that have gone down, obviously underachieved because no one, no one goes into the beginning of the season assuming they're getting relegated. Um, Arsenal, massive underachievers. You know, Emery, a manager that I was looking forward to seeing in the, in the Premier League. Um, so successful, especially in European competition with Sevilla. And uh, and unfortunately, it was not just uh, good evening, but it was also a good night for uh, Unai Emery. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he just didn't, he just never got off the ground for him. So bad defensively. Um, and the way in which he wanted to play football in a, in a really quite unique way, it just never, ever ended up working in the Premier League. Um, Arteta's come in and actually looks like a good fit. And actually, you know, does, here's a question then, because I'm sure you think Arsenal are underachieved as well. But does winning the FA Cup make up for an eighth-place finish for Arsenal? Aside that, this for the first time in, I can't remember the amount of years, but I'm sure something like 25 years, it would have been like the first time that they hadn't qualified for Europe. But they somehow managed to do it via the Cup. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit of a hit to finish eighth. You know, Arsenal, I think it might bring to their attention that, you know, fourth place is a big achievement for a club that that is just so poor defensively. And Arsene Wenger did wonders to keep that consistency. I think, yeah, when it, I mean, you know, they've won a trophy. They are in Europe for next season. Maybe it doesn't quite fully make up for it, but, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse if they'd lost the final. No Europe. I mean, Arsenal in no European competition for, for a season is just, you know, it's, it's unthink- unthinkable, really. It's been a really poor season for them. They have won the FA Cup against a, a good Chelsea side. So in that sense, they've sort of made up for it. But I still think an eighth place finished for Arsenal is is, is, is pretty poor. I think, I think sometimes it's a blessing in disguise when you get that season where you don't have any European competition. You can focus your best 11, best squad on the league. I remember Chelsea doing it under under Mourinho when they finished so low, so like eleventh, didn't they, in the league? When um, I think when Leicester won it, and they ended up winning it the next season. Obviously, they had more money, to, you know, they're just throwing money at it that, that Arsenal don't. I think at the end of it, um, the FA Cup was a bit of a saving grace for Arsenal. However, I'd say it was a poor season for Arsenal, but it was a good season for Arteta, or a good half a season for Arteta, because. He came in and, and essentially won one of the only competitions that he could. Uh, I think it's the only competition they left in. I know, you know, they're obviously out of Europe as well. So, yeah, yeah, he, he's he's one for the future, isn't he? Um, in his first proper job, it's a big job for your first job. I know he's the understudy of Pep, but uh, they'll be looking ahead next season. And Arsenal actually under him in 2020 haven't lost many games. Um, who, who else have we got on the list of underachievers? Anyone, anyone else to kind of throw at it before we look at those that, that surprised us in the right way? 
I think uh, another underachiever would be Arsenal's North London rival, rivals and Spurs, you know, Champions League finalists. Start the season with a lot of positivity. Pochettino, is he going to lead? Like, can they effectively challenge City or Liverpool for the title? You think that they might finish, you know, in the top three? And it's just been a season of calamity for them, really. Yes, they've qualified for Europe, but, you know, after what they've been building, it's sort of not all fallen apart, but it's certainly, take se- certainly taken several hits. And, um, I mean, they spent the majority of the season in and around mid-table and only a really good spell after lockdown managed to, again, almost like Arsenal, like a saving grace, sort of managed to just pull their season and have a yeah. respectable finish. But for the majority of the season, they were they were pretty bad. Yeah, I've got to agree with that. I mean, the, the fact that they finished above Wolves and Sheffield United is is ridiculous um, because they they weren't... I know they finished there, but actually they they were worse over the season than those two sides. However, managed to get the points towards the end when um, when obviously mattered. The, the big change of manager was, was is a huge talking point and um, interested to watch that documentary behind the scenes um, when it comes out on that season because, like you said, Champions League finalist Mochettino still not winning anything, but suddenly um, a, a bit of a poor start to the season and he's gone. They get in Mourinho, who's a winner, and that's the only reason they got in Mourinho. Chelsea legend, of course, but a completely different way of playing football. And like you say, that's a transitional period for him. He, he needs a few seasons. Um, and I think Tottenham, it would be interesting to see actually if Tottenham give them that or not, because uh, I think Levy sees, sees a project there. But I just wonder if the Tottenham fans, if they're not winning anything immediately, will put up with that sort of dour football. But yeah, they, I think they're the three that went down, West Ham, Arsenal and Tottenham, Apart from them, I don't think you could say that anyone underachieved. I want to throw in just one, but it's sort of like they're consistently underachieving, um, and that's Everton. Every season, you think that they make investment, you think it's some, you think that they're gonna break into the top eight. Okay, this is the time that this is the season that they've got it right. This is the signings that they've made. They've got a good manager in Marco Silva, and then again, they just in and around the relegation zone for the first half of the season. Ancelotti comes in and they finish mid-table, but you know, you keep on thinking as Everton as sort of maybes to push for a Europa League spot, and they just don't. They just they just never get it right. Somewhat similar to West Ham, aren't they? They're somewhat similar to West Ham, except they didn't drop quite as low as West Ham did this season. Mm-hmm. Although the season before they were there, but they they've really gone through it with Ancelotti, haven't they? And I think it's I think if they're ever going to achieve top eight finish, uh, it, it's got to be under. The man who's won it all, yeah, you know, who's one of the few managers to win multiple Champions Leagues. I mean, they've gone and picked the cream of the crop. So, yeah, I, I think they, yeah, they underachieved. I mean, they finished well. They finished twelfth. They're probably hoping to finish definitely in the top half, but maybe the top eight. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a huge underachievement, but I think yeah, from where we were, if you cast your minds back to the beginning of the season with Marcus Silva. It all, it all went wrong quite early on, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, less of the doom and gloom. Let's have a look at the overachievers. We've, we've discussed Liverpool. We'll discuss them no more because they obviously overachieved. The, the obvious one is Sheffield United and Chris Wilder. He, they were, no one predicted that they would do what they did. Most people thought they were going to finish bottom of the pile. Um, I still don't know how the players that they have managed to achieve a ninth place finish that for a very long time look like it could finish top 
six and were even iron up the top four at one stage. Um, what he's managed to do there, and although although we couldn't see the quality in their individual players at the beginning of the season, we saw that there was a definite plan, a philosophy, an organisation, and really, if you're talking about a well-oiled machine, that's what Sheffield United are. They have a way of playing. It got them promotion through the championship. They have the underlapping centre-halves playing three at the back, and they just have players that maybe don't look great on paper, but they fit the exact bill for every single role. And they have two players in most positions who can do that. And I think Chris Wilder has, has pulled up trees this season. I think he's done an absolutely superb job. And, you know, if Jurgen Klopp hadn't bulldozed his way through the Premier League, then I'd have Chris Wilder as my manager of the season. I think, yeah, you look at their players individually and you struggle to pick out someone that can be a threat to a team on, on their own. Um, as in like a game changer but Sheffield United you know to spend that long of the season challenging European spots they did run out of steam towards the end but you know that's to be expected after being so consistent all season that that was and then you know not I mean Covid never can can never come at the right time or the wrong it's always the wrong time but for Sheffield United it was especially bad because they had a sort of a headache and they started off slow and that's sort of where the European dreams started to fade but they did absolutely fantastic I mean for a promoted side that everyone tipped to pretty much finish 19th or 20th to then finish you know the highest of all of the promoted sides that came up was superb I think maybe a bit uh, left field out of the box here as an overachiever but I'd, I'd pick Brighton as an overachiever for finishing the season not being in a relegation scrap on the final day I thought they were going to finish rock bottom I thought Graham Potter whilst a good you know, he's a good manager, but he's unproven at this level. Um, I thought that they, you know, they lost Knockhart, who was one of their most creative players. It it seemed like their squad was weak. And if any team was going to finish bottom of the pile, it would be it would be Brighton or Sheffield United. I think for Brighton to not be in a relegation battle by the end of the season means they've overachieved. I mean, they've made a couple of decent signings so far. So um, for next season, who knows? But in terms of this season, I thought that they were nailed on to get relegated. So to not be in that battle come the final day, I think is an overachievement on their part. Yeah, yeah. And I think for much of the uh, the summer, it seemed that way. But then when they, when they signed... Uh, Webster and, and Malpai from from the championship it then it put them back in the race again because I feel like they may well have been a, a, a nailed on um, relegation candidate but once but that was because they had no goals and once they've got that extra quality at centre back for 15 million and then they spent near on 20 million on Malpai and they spent 35 million on two players you're going to improve your squad and, and Malpoi essentially is the reason that they stayed up you know let's be honest so um, yeah they, they finished uh, they finished 15th in the end to Brighton mm. but um, and, and and they were kind of post lockdown they were the, the highest of the sides still potentially involved but they uh, they got four points from uh, from Arsenal and Leicester um, in the first two games and from there on in were safe along those same lines then the side that we thought was going to get relegated um, and actually I think their manager is is, is right up there um, for, for a manager of the season candidate is, is Newcastle and Steve Bruce who um, who never really were in it uh, from the start 
of the season through to the end. And actually, to finish mid-table when when he came in as late as he did, in the circumstances he came in at, uh, I think Arsenal, uh, I think uh, Newcastle have completely overachieved. How they, uh, you know, I think seventeenth would have been an overachievement for Newcastle. But the way that they start, you know, they started the season, the summer that they had, would have been a real overachievement had they been taken over by the richest owners in uh, in football history. However, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So, um, so yeah, not not quite the ten out of ten season that they would have liked, but. Certainly, uh, you know, I think Steve Bruce deserves lots of credit. Yeah, he does. And I think that it is an overachievement as well, but also maybe in terms of individual underachievement, you know, spending £40 million on on a striker and then for him to be as pathetically bad as Joe Linton, go take, take some doing. I think I think they did overachieve their, their squad. If you look at it, it's, you know, it's, it's championship quality. There's not a lot of Premier League quality in there, but they looked comfortable for the majority of the season they were picking up results against teams that I mean they they got their annual away win at Tottenham to kickstart it really and I thought that I think there's I mean in terms of next season now with the news that they're not getting that the takeover isn't happening I mean it's still early to go I'd still put them down as one of my favorites to get relegated um but for next season yeah i but that that that's just me, and it depends on what the uh, how the transfer window goes. But going going back to um, the season that we've just had in this review, yeah, they have overachieved. Another team that I'd say is overachieved would be Burnley. You know, they've got fifty four points, really big achievement for them. Again, I didn't think that they were going to be involved in a relegation scrap, but you know, to hold on to the coattails of the Europa League chasing pack uh, for the for the vast majority of the season have that really good um, away record, unbeaten, uh, got the point at Anfield as well, ended the Liverpool's uh, winning winning streak at Anfield. And I think that, you know, they just became, especially after lockdown, a really solid, solid side. No, I mean, aside from Dwight McNeil, no real flair players, just rugged, solid. Joe Rodriguez had a really good season, I think. And they just they play their style of play is difficult to defend against because it's pretty route one. Not many teams can they they they're able to play in play that style of football in any condition. I mean, when we when they came to St Mary's, how like howling at Hooley, rain, wind, storm, that's fine. That's that, that's Burnley for them. You say, or oh, can they do it on a cold Tuesday night at Stoke? It's just like they. They can. They'll win four 0 That they've. I thought they've overachieved just because. Again, individually, you look at their squad. You don't think there are too many big players and there are too many match winners. They're a bit like Sheffield United, a better version of Sheffield United in terms of they just have good, solid players in each position, and they've got a good manager at the helm. Yeah, yeah. Chris Wilder's doing what Sean Dyche has done for for years. I, I would I would say that they are the exact opposite of Everton. I'd say only overachieved by as much as Everton underachieved. You know, when you said Everton are not necessarily underachievers this season, but consistent underachievers, I, that's how I'd describe Burnley in uh, in an overachieving light. They, they didn't, I think they pretty much did what Burnley do, half of the course. I think they had a good season, but I think they're, they're consistently overachieving. I think the last side I would say overachieved. You know, you give give a shout to Leicester, who if they finished third would have overachieved, and by their own standards they did by finishing fifth overachieve. However, I thought 
that was to be predicted. And they looked, you know, there were a lot of people's choices to break into that top six, uh, mine and yours included in that. And they and they got there, I think, had they finished in the top four, and especially third, because they threw it away after lockdown, completely bowled it. Um, I, I think they would have been huge overachievers. But um, I, the last team I would, I would put as overachievers are Chelsea. Uh, because um, didn't think they'd get it. I think they'd drop out of the top six at the expense of Leicester. I think you did as well. And for a side to... It's easy to forget where we were at the beginning of the season. Chelsea Football Club had brought in Trent Lampard, who had one year as a manager at any level, and that was at championship level. They brought him in, club legend. Then they said to him... You can't buy anyone because we haven't got any uh, money, but we're not allowed to buy anyone. Okay. And also, we're um, selling the Premier League's best player, arguably, in Edson Hazard. So you won't have him either. Right, okay. Oh, and your defence is um, awful. Um, And your first choice striker is Tammy Abraham, who was playing in the Championship last season. Brilliant. And then he finishes top four and... I was so unlucky not to win an FA Cup. I think Frank Lampard is, is is up there with the managers of the season, and to do what he did and get them into into uh, into the Premier League, I think he literally had a free hit at the beginning of the season. We were saying, I think Chelsea fans would have agreed, if he didn't get top four, he didn't get Europe. Never mind. Next season will be the test. This is a bidding in season. He can't spend any money. It's almost an excuse. Didn't see it like that, and he got straight into it, and he did it in a way where they played great football, and he blooded the youth, which is something that Chelsea have not done since Roman Abramovich took over. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what Frank Lampard can do now that he's getting those signings in that he has already got in early in Zayech and and uh, Werner and others seemingly on their way in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next season, but last season I think they did phenomenally well. They did, and they blooded the youth. They brought a lot of players through that you know were exciting. Rhys James looks an incredible talent. Tammy Abraham as well up front showed that he can do it in the Premier League on a consistent basis. Um, Pulisic, who wasn't signed by Lampard, but turns has really got some confidence in him. And Chelsea did really, really well considering the limitations that they had. Uh, so yeah, it'd be really exciting with those signings that they make, just how much of a threat they can be next season. I don't think I think title challenges may be a bit too far, but um, you, you never know. You can't predict it, and especially if they were to make signings such as Havertz as well. And but they do need to shore up their defence. They have a, they now have incredible attacking options, but unless they do something about that back four, then and especially the goalkeeping situation, then yeah. next season is going to be maybe similar path of the course. So, Callum, let's now go on to our 10 major points of the season. Now, we've gone five each. Neither of us know exactly what we've gone for. So there could potentially be some overlapping. Don't know. We try to do a bit of thinking outside the box in terms of those key moments from the season. Callum, I want to start off with the big one of the biggest changes in football. Was that the introduction of VAR? That obviously changed the real landscape of the Premier League in terms of the timings of that decisions were to be made. But a key moment, actually, for me, I mean, we'll talk about VAR as well as this, but there's a lot of, there's, there's been ongoing debate about the quality of VAR. Is it right? Is the tech right? Are the people using it? What are they doing? Is it a bit too much in depth? 
but the one that's been working quite consistently throughout the since it's been implemented um, and actually had in terms of the final outcome of the table quite a massive impact was the uh, the failure of goal line technology in the first game back from the coronavirus by Villa got, did get that point. I mean, you don't know how the rest of the game's going to go if that goes 1-0 up, but, uh, if Sheffield United go 1-0 up, but they eventually managed to survive by a singular point. Yeah, and uh, almost for a second they might fight that. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to be able to, but yeah, that one point actually keeps Aston Villa in the Premier League. And um, I mean, goal, goal line technology, it's funny, with VAR being the first season um, that's implemented in the Premier League, Goal line technology is the is the old the old part that's been going on for for many a season and and it's we thought it was completely you know bulletproof error proof I think first game of the season back from Project Restart someone didn't set it up someone didn't someone you know didn't charge up the watch someone forgot to turn it, you know for for someone for Hawkeye to come out and say, oh, you know, we've got six vantage points and none of them could pick up the fact that the guy was leaning against the back of the post. Yeah, come on. Um, absolute rubbish. It was the first game back. It's clearly someone dropped the ball. And unfortunately, it means that almost the watch would go down. But at the end of the day, you haven't got anyone to blame but yourselves because uh, there are plenty of other teams who didn't get sucked into that relegation battle based on the fact that Aston Villa got an extra point. So, yeah, that was absolute madness. VAR, it seems like it's been around forever now and it seems like we've been talking about it forever, but this is the first season. And it, yeah, if, if I had to say is it a success or is it not, I would say that it definitely is not. However, I don't think that's because of the technology. I don't think that's because it's a bad idea. I don't think that's because it's a useless bit of kit. it's still human error. We've gone from match officials making human error in making the wrong decisions to match officials using human error by not utilising the technology that they've got in front of them. So instead of it now being that guy's fouled someone in the area, it's a penalty. It should have been a penalty, but the ref didn't give it. It's now the ref didn't give it, but someone else is having a chance to look at it. They can see like us that he's tripped him up but they've decided still not to give it. So, yeah, I'm not going to go on about the referees and how useless they are a lot of the time, but it seems to me now that they spend more time trying to save face and trying to find find out a way in which they can say, you know, the referee didn't initially get it wrong. The whole point is to say, look, the referees can't do it all. On this occasion, I've seen the replay, and unfortunately... You got it wrong, mate. So you're going to have to give that penalty. I'd rather do that than they try and spare the blushes of their mate and say, um, mm, it's not clear and obvious in quotations. So um, we'll just say you got that one right. It's, 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 not, it's not good enough. Um, and the other thing I can't understand is why the bloody hell they're not using that pitch side monitor. You know, I don't want the referee going over there 10 times a game but there aren't 10 massive decisions a game. And if there's one that they need to get right, they can still make that decision themselves. Um, so lots to improve on, but the tech is spot on. Yeah, I think... Do you, it, you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's not the fault of the tech. The tech is fine. It's the people who interpret the tech. And we've seen this season, it's still a case of human error. Well, How that's going to go on into next season, obviously we'll wait and see. But yeah, 
first season, VAR has certainly grabbed a lot of the headlines. What would you put as your first major point of the season? Um, I've, got a, I've got a question for you, and um, I'll ask you, in hindsight, what do you think was the signing of the season? And I'm going to say from last summer, because I think Bruno Fernandes is the obvious signing of the season in terms of changing a club's fortune. So back to last summer, who do you think was uh, was the signing of the season? Is it one, is it one that surprised you? Well, you've actually taken away one of my points there with Bruno Fernandes. I think, um, I mean, we, I, I talk, I'll, I'll gloss over him very briefly and just I think he was a key point for Manchester United season because they went from towards the bottom of the of the top half and ended up finishing third. So I think in terms of individual fortunes, massive change. But in answer to your question about a summer signing of the season, at the start, I thought it would be Tielemans. I think he'd bring a lot to the Leicester midfield, but we already knew his quality from the loan that he had the season before. If I was to sort of grasp at a, uh, a signing now, signing of the season, I mean, a lot of Saints bias, but Danny Ings, £20 million. He's got 22 Premier League goals. Has he? It's been a bit of a surprise because he only, he only played about half the games last season because he was out injured. He's kept himself fit this season, came back. And he's almost won the golden boot. Fantastic. Bit biased, but I mean, a signing of the signing of the season. You can't really look too too much past that. Well, I haven't really thought about the answers to these questions myself, if I'm honest. But having spoken about him earlier, I think that may be uh, in a similar eye um, because Danny Ings also, like Tillemans, was on loan last season. Um, I'd say that Neil Malpai, um, in terms of affecting his side's position in the league. First season in the Premier League, he'd been scoring goals in the Championship for Brentford, uh, comes in, gets double figures and scores a lot of important goals uh, for for Brighton in, in keeping them keeping them up. Let's talk about Bruno Fernandes then, if that's if that's one of your one of your key points of the season. Yeah, it, it, it was it was a huge point and uh, I think without him Man United don't finish in the top four. Yeah, I don't I think they even struggle to maybe make the Europa League spots. I know they're in fifth at that point, but um, there was still a bit of disarray. The fact that he's come in, that front floor, that front four have now clicked superbly. In, they've got a frightening attack, and I mean, there's rumours that they're going to add Jaden Sancho to that. So next season, we could be seeing the Man United of old, being just a frightening attacking options. But in terms of this season, Fernandez, he came in, he's won the Player of the Month award three times. I mean, ten goals and twenty appearances. And then, of course, all the assists that he's got to add to that. Yeah, a lot of those goals are penalties, but he's create. The chances are he's been in the build-up to create the opportunity that has led to a penalty. In terms of a player coming in and changing a club's fortunes around, Fernandez is up there. Season-changing. Yeah, I can't think of many that have uh, come in part way through a season and turned things around as as much as um, as much as he has. And he, didn't he come in and, and get? He got either a, a goal or an assist in, in like every game that he played, uh, which was which was madness, really. Um, okay, question for you, and I'll kind of lead on to a point, depending on what answer you give. Lots of managers parted ways with their with their clubs. A lot of change of managerial position throughout the Premier League. Which did you see as the as the biggest moment? Maybe the most questionable one. Maybe the most surprising one. Or, or maybe even just the most um, impactful one. But which did you see as, as the major managerial change in the Premier League this season? The one that stands out for me, um, again, one of my points is uh, the sacking of Maurizio Pochettino at Spurs. 
Five and a half years he's been at Spurs. He's got them into the Champions League final for the first time. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about Spurs that, you know, they've dabbled towards the top half of the table. They don't win anything. And they've suddenly, you know, he's got them into, you know, the biggest final in football, aside, a club final. And, you know, he's built something at Spurs. He's been there for a long time. He's brought the players that he's wanted. He's moulded the team to play the way that he wants. And after a poor run of results at the beginning of one season, he's gone. Now, that's surprising because I think for a, for a manager to be there for that long, you'd maybe give them the best. And, and yes, he hasn't won anything, but the progress that Spurs have made into going from team finishing sixth or seventh to actually, you know, challenging for the title, um, certainly being around the top four and being one of those sort of like ones that are challenging for third or fourth. You thought you you surely you'd give them a bit of leeway, a bit of benefit of the doubt. Yeah, if you had a poor first half of the season, if you can bring it back, then fine. But the fact they just got rid of him, and yeah, they brought in Mourinho, who is a known winner. Spurs, you know, they're at a time where they need to start convert. They've got good players. They need to convert it into winning trophies. But I thought that Mourinho is more of a short-term gap when I think that Mauricio Pochettino, if he continued to build, could actually go on to win something. So I was quite disappointed that they got rid of him because I thought that he was actually building something there. It was just a case of just taking its time. And he got them to the Champions League final. Yeah, I, I don't know. I still don't know really if it was his own decision. I mean, it seemed a pretty mutual thing at the end of the day. Um, and Tottenham went down a different route. You know, they've gone from the, the, the young Buck, who's one of the best coaches in in world football and uh, could have been there for another 10 years. They feel like they gave him enough time. He'd done as much, he'd taken them as far as he could, they could go. And the only thing they were missing now, they were in the Champions League final, like you said, the only thing they're missing now is silverware. And who better to bring that to your club than Jose Mourinho? I just think, at least temporarily, it means that they're going to have to take a backward step and maybe undo a lot of the work in terms of the way they play football. Um, that, Mauricio Pochettino did for them, but um, yeah, they might go back and have a transition for a couple of seasons. They haven't been great this season, but he's got them into the top six and uh, Mourinho has done what he needs to do. And then next season, he'll do everything he can to win. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw them go really, really hard at the Europa League and, and the, the domestic cup competitions, you know, played really strong sides. Um, but the, yeah, that was the one I was kind of leaning towards and, try and and hoping that you might um, you might give that answer on. Yeah, I mean, in terms of you, aside from Pochettino, is there another sacking that maybe caught you out or were the majority of them quite expected? Not necessarily a sacking, but the appointment of Carlo Ancelotti was a shock. I know we touched on it, so I won't talk about it too much, but for Everton to get a manager with the credentials that he has, the clubs that he's managed top echelons of European football, Champion, multiple Champions League winners to go to Everton, who were hoping to finish in the top half, really surprised me. Yeah, it was a surprising appointment, and I think with financial backing this summer, yeah, we talked about it. Everton, will they? Won't they? Will they underachieve again? Who knows? But um, another point that I wanted to, add, which I think, well, I've got, I've got sort of maybe put two points into one, two specific results of the season concerning Liverpool. One was. The 4-0 win away to Leicester, because I thought that was a point where it was a case of Leicester, you know, they're going great guns. They beat us 9-0. They were genuinely challenging for the title. They were the only, they, they, they were in second at that point. 
and Liverpool just blew them away in the way that we saw them do countless times this season. It was a real performance where you thought this will be a good even game. Can Leicester, can they, you know, end the run for Liverpool? And Liverpool were just like, no. And they just slice, slice, slice through them. One four nil. scored some fantastic goals. And that was a case of, ah, right, Liverpool are going to do it. The other result, however, is sort of flipped. It's the 3-0 for Watford against Liverpool, where it was a case of that was the that was their first defeat um, that just highlighted that Liverpool can be beaten. And it was so unexpected because Watford, you know, down in the relegation zone, you're thinking Liverpool are coming to town. Oh, well, how's it, how many is it going to be? Two, three, four? And then Watford thrashed them. It, it showed that Liverpool, whilst they are an extraordinary side, they're still human and they're still beatable. Yeah. And also Jordan Henderson didn't play for them in that game. Might I just add as well, so a lot of people tend to hate on him, but it just goes to show that, you know, if he was playing, would they have lost that game? You know, who knows? But um, the first game, yeah, I, that was, I remember that game because I think Leicester may even have been second, or if they'd won it, they'd go second. You know, they, they, were, they were almost closer to Liverpool than Man City were. And yeah, that was the point where Liverpool won it and you went, yeah, they've won four now against the guys who, who might have been able to put a dent in their position at the top. But yeah, they, they're going to win the league. And this was like winter. So the, the, the main thing I remember of that is, um, is that Trent Alexander-Arnold just blew away Leicester on his own. And I think that was the point. You know, he was, he was top ever uh, assist maker for Premier League last season, just beating Robertson. He then Robertson equals that tally this season, but he just beats him by another by another assist. He's he's been doing it for a couple of seasons, but that point I think was uh, was the point where suddenly you were like, yeah, this guy is is one of the best in the world. Young young players, uh, players in that position, full stop. And I think that was also the point where most of most of Premier League fans thought in a position that has a lot of competition in the England team. He, he suddenly rose above the rest, um, and and that was that was huge. We realised we've got actually a, a potential world eleven player, and he's English, and he's twenty one. By the way, the, the Watford game, yeah, complete complete shock, and and the major reason why that is a huge point is because Liverpool looked like they were going to go unbeaten, and Arsenal fans probably celebrated that win more than Watford fans did. So yeah, uh, it was a great. You know, Ishmael Sarr was was unbelievable. Was it a? Uh, it was quite a late game, was it? I can't remember if it was a. If it was a, it was um, a night match, a yeah. Sunday evening or a Saturday. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday evening, Saturday evening. Yeah. Um, after all the other games have been played, and I remember I didn't watch it, but I remember seeing someone saying, "Oh yeah, Watford will beat Liverpool," and then it was two 0 and it was three 0 and I was like, "What the hell is happening?" But yeah, that was that was unbelievable. But um, yeah, they didn't do that enough Watford, did they? Let me ask you a question in terms of preference for you. Which side survived in the Premier League this season? Who you wish didn't? And uh, and if you could swap them with one of the relegated sides, who would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. I think a funny one to go down would be West Ham. You know, all of that investment. Big players, massive stadium, 
Could you imagine West Ham hosting Wickham Wanderers in the championship next year in the, the Olympic Stadium? Um, after all that investment and then suddenly the beast Akin Fenwa is coming to town and then you'd know it'd be total West Ham for Wickham to then get a plucky win with all of, you know, the with Felipe Anderson getting muscled off the ball, a £40 million player by um, Akin Fenwa, who's what, like 38, 39 and built like an absolute mountain if i could pick a team to survive instead i don't really have too much of an affiliation with any of them norwich i mean keep them up and then that's an easy six points for saints next season watford they're a weird club i didn't i don't mind them going down there's a lot about that club that i don't like in terms of the way that they're run um i don't feel they add too much they've got an aging squad they're just sort of blow a bit hot and cold i prefer Bournemouth to stay up would be good because that's a, just a game that adds a little bit. I mean, it's not a derby, but it's a game that has a little bit of extra bite to it. And that's that's something that Saints lack in the Premier League. A game that you can maybe look forward to a little bit more just because there's not a lot riding on it. But, you, you know, you always want bragging rights, even if you don't think that it's that much of a derby. So I'll probably swap them. That's probably swap West Ham for Norwich. What about you? I've completely contra- I contra- contradicted myself there. So yeah, Bournemouth. I swap West Ham with Bournemouth. Okay. I'd um, yeah, I'd, out of the three, I'd keep Bournemouth up. A little bit more intriguing and the kind of banter that you have between Saints and Bournemouth fans. Nothing more than that. Uh, but also, they you know until this season under Eddie Howe, they, I thought they actually brought something to the Premier League and uh, and they were exciting to watch and they had um, some good young players. It was only only once they. Um, started investing in twenty million pound flops that they uh, that they lost their place in the league. I would swap out Brighton. I oh, just boring. I just don't like watching them. Seen a couple of games this season and oh, how tedious. Nil nil. You know, Graham Potter's probably trying to change that a bit, but essentially they're good at having big lummoxes at the back that throw their body in front of everything. Um, and hope that Glenn Murray or now Neil Malpai might get the get the winner in a one nil win. No, I completely, I completely agree. Like they are not, not like Stoke, because Stoke are just were just horrendous in the way in the style of play that they were implementing, especially under Tony Pulis. Question for you, in terms of a point of an early, uh, an early prediction for next season is who's going to finish higher out of Leeds or West Brom? Leeds. Next question. <laughs> I, I agree. I think I think actually Leeds could do superb next season. I think they're they're a massive club. And yes, we all hate Leeds as the chant goes, but I think they'll bring a lot to the Premier League next season and West Brom. I'll tell you why I tell you why I think that, because um no one's gonna finish below West Brom, because I think they finished bottom. Uh, albeit no transfer window yet. But yeah, they're they're the, the boing boing baggies for a reason. That's because they keep boing it up and down and up and down and just a yo yo club just like Norwich. Actually, at the time we're recording this, it's not long until kickoff in the playoff final where we find out the final team. If we're just just off the back of that question, off the top of my head, then if firstly Brentford and then Fulham, if either one of those gets promoted, do you see very early stages, no 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 sort of transfers or anything like that? But do you see either of them staying up? Who would have a better chance? Do you think Brentford? 
very well run, good players. I think they were. I think they'd stay up and not at, not at a canter, but they'd stay up comfortably. I think they'd probably finish about thirteenth, fourteenth. Fulham. I know, I know, I know. They're they're a small club, but they're very well run. They play good football. They've shown this season that they can. They do have good players, and I'm sure that in the transfer window they would bring in some good players that maybe we're not that we're not too knowledgeable on. I just see them doing well. I don't see them finishing in the bottom three at all. Fulham are due. Quite similar. They're quite similar to Bournemouth when Bournemouth came up, aren't they? Yeah. You know, both quite small. Never been in the Premier League. But I think Brentford have been consistently knocking on that door longer than Bournemouth. Bournemouth were a bit more out of nowhere. But yeah, I know what you're saying. They're well run, and they seem to be that kind of um, team that almost like you know Saints were under Kuman and Pochettino, where you'd lose a player, but there was another one lined up, and they've kind of got that going for them. Yeah, but it's a completely different game in the Premier League, and I don't know. You know, they might be good at finding players that are good enough for that level, or them. You know, but are they going to come up and try to play expansive attacking football in the Premier League? Because we've seen sides do that and suffer the consequences. Well, an encouraging sign from this season was when they played Leicester in the FA Cup, and they played pretty much their second string against Leicester, and they only lost one nil, and they actually were very unlucky in that game. I know Leicester were still playing some. Um, second string but we're still talking about a team that are in the top four consistently until the end of the season and the second we were were chatting about it because we were watching the game whilst getting ready for um, commentating on Saints and you you mentioned especially how Brentford had players that on the bench they would their second string was almost as good as the first in terms of they know what their role is they play a particular style and you can take any player out put in a replacement either way and they know exactly what they need to do and just sort of slot in seamlessly and I think that will do Brentford really well for next season uh, well if they were to go up and um, I, I, I mean if it, if it is Leeds, West Brom and Brentford West Brom are the lowest one I think Leeds and, and Brentford could finish comfortably the bottom the top the top of the bottom half as it were I just think they have the, that quality that they can bring. To, I think I think next season will actually be really tough in terms of the quality of the teams. I don't really see too many that are nailed on to go down, apart from maybe apart yeah. West Brom. There's just a lot what of... Fulham? What about Fulham? Are they prices? Boring. I don't think that... They don't bring. They don't give me any excitement. I've got a mate who's a Fulham fan, and he doesn't even think that they're going to win tonight, and he said he didn't really even... No, if he wanted to, because he just think that they're not ready to come up. They got good players. I think, got... I think they'll learn, they've got more experience. They'll learn, remember they only got relegated last year, so they'll learn from that. Scott Parker was was the manager. Um, he took over from I think Ranieri, didn't he? After they'd already pretty much were, were sealed relegation, so he's had a bit of experience, and they'll know what they need to do differently. And I'd, I'd like Scott Parker as another young Englishman. Who I like to play. I'd like to see him do well. And they've also got Mitrovic, who is a, who is a, a joker in the pack. So I wouldn't write them off as much, but I think they'd have to. They can't go to spending a hundred million again on rubbish. Um, but they've also got to get rid of the some of the dross defensively that was not good enough last season. Yeah, they. Um, I think they of, of all the teams to go, if they were to go out, they'd be the least well equipped, apart in terms of the quality that they already have in their squad. So yeah, that that would be that's my take on how well those two those two teams would do should they get promoted this evening. I've got um, I've got a couple more questions. Let me just ask you these uh, real quick. Um, who is your young player of the season? 
or maybe a, a player, a young player that's come through that you were looking forward to seeing next season? Mason Greenwood. I've never seen a more two-footed player, a young player, and he hits the ball with so much power. I mean, what, 16, 17 goals in your first full season? We should get this guy's what, 18, 19? He's a frightening talent. And, you know, Man United's attack next season is going to be really quite scary. And if he continues to develop, then we have a uh, player on our hands. Yeah, I, I think um, for me, he, he's second behind Phil Foden. And that's just because Phil Foden has played consistently this year. Um, and has played in the Premier League on and off for the last few years. But the fact that he's been, he's had a lot of game time um, in the top division of English football. A lot of Mason Greenwoods until lockdown was was sort of Europa League stuff, wasn't it? But I think Phil Foden. What's great is that they're both English, um, and we've got the Euros hopefully next uh, next summer. Um, the last one I would ask you is who, which team will vary the most in this season's Premier League predictions? So your Premier League predictions compared to your prediction for that team last season. So is there a side that you predicted would would do really well or really poorly last season, and you're going to completely flip reverse it this this season? West Ham, I'm, I'm, I think they flattered to deceive with with um, flamboyant decent on paper, exciting attacking flair players and names that make you think that they're going to break into that top eight, seven, six, and we fall for it every single season when inevitably the club has got something obviously wrong with it. And I, I think I predicted they finish eighth and even thought that they might be able to finish higher because of the sign-ins and the money they'd spent. I think... I don't care who they sign this season. Uh, I'm going to predict that they're going to finish around the same place they finished this season. Okay. I think by the time we do, I will do our predictions in a few weeks after the transfers have happened, and I'll be like, yeah, they've got this new player, and he's, yeah, they're going to get top six. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I, I think actually, um, sort of the same goes for Everton. I think although they've got Ancelotti, depends on who they sign, but you know, we keep on thinking, oh, this is a new dawn for them. And I think they'll just end up in mid-table again next season. I really do. I think that it's almost like a curse. They can't quite get out of that between 10th and 14th place at the moment. You say it's a curse, but um, how many times have we seen teams with that curse? That, uh, that are like, oh, we're bored of finishing here and playing this crap football. And then they get a change of manager and they get relegated. And then like a Stoke, for instance, who are at the bottom of the championship, wishing that they were mid-table mediocrity hoofing the ball up to Ricardo Fuller and Kevin Jones. So um, I think I think Chelsea will be another one um, in the opposite direction. I thought they finished seventh this season, but with the signings they're getting and the money they've got now, um, top four nailed on, I think, for them. Yeah, I think they could even challenge for the title. I think the, the same goes with Man United. I think um, we didn't we thought we didn't we didn't exactly know how how they were going to do i think they've been a bit of a they've been a disappointment for the last few years we thought maybe they'd finish fifth or sixth this season they'd have to listen back to the prediction but i think they could again challenge for the top four and if they do sign sancho and whoever if they did whatever other signings they make there could be a really really i think liverpool could have genuine contenders next season in terms of the the chasing pack so yeah, is that all your questions that that's that's um but i'll finish with um a final question for you. 
in terms of an individual player, who's been your surprise of the season? Oh, an individual player, okay. Because that rules out Sheffield United, who, who I immediately think to when you say surprise, because they're they're um, a sum of the parts. Is this is this a, a who surprised me in a positive way? Either way. Okay. Well. Okay. It's a bit of a cop out answer, but I mean, Danny Ings is the one I think. I'm a Saints fan, but I think he would be the answer for everyone. Yeah, regardless of whether you support Saints or not, I think it's an easier answer if you support another side because he scored a ridiculous amount of goals. Um, we've spoken a lot about Danny Ings, though, so I'm going to try and have a think of someone else. I would say, from a positive point of view, again, trying to veer away from Liverpool players because you, know, you could say Henderson, but the, the whole side's been unbelievable. I think the Bruin has taken it up another notch. Negatively, I'd say I thought Hallow was going to be an unbelievable signing for West Ham, and he wasn't, um, or hasn't. Hasn't been so far. What do you think? It's a disappointment for me this season. Um, is David De Gea? He's becoming far more error prone. He's been one of the top goalkeepers in the world, and considering how high the standards are that he holds, it's been mis- there's been a lot of mistakes happening, especially in the latter part of the season, to the point where you're thinking, are oh, Man United going to have to replace their goalkeeper? Yeah, he can still make some amazing reflex saves, but there's been some points this season where you think, how has he not stopped that? And considering the high reputation that he has, I think that he's certainly fallen fallen from those quite drastically. Yeah, yeah, I think that's been coming over the last couple of seasons, isn't it? I'll tell you who I would put in as my positive surprise of the season, and it's uh, Soyuncu at Leicester. I thought he um, would be the weak link when Maguire left and they didn't manage to bring in Lucas Dunk or Tarkovsky. Um, He'd already been there as an understudy and a bench player, and they just promoted him. Um, and I thought he'd be a weakness, but actually he's been quite literally a strength. Um, I think he's, I think he's been fantastic alongside Johnny Evans. So I'd, I'd go with him. Have you got a positive player in mind? Or was yours Danny Ings as well? <laughs> well, you know, that, we can't. I'll, I'll try and see if I can just go against the grain a little bit more. Because uh, Danny Ings, I mean, if you've listened to our podcast, you'll know exactly how much that we love. Danny Ings and how many times we'll have mentioned him as some kind of deity. Uh, let me just have a think of a player that surprised me with how, how good they were. For me, he had such big boots to fill, but I think Christian Pulisic has come into the league and done exceptionally well to fill the void left by Eden Hazard. Yeah, he hasn't anywhere near reached the heights that Hazard did, but he's proven to be a very capable and exciting young player um especially and you know by the end of the uh, by the end of the campaign he was pretty much in terms of that's like that same role with Hazard just give it to him and let him run it the players with pace he'll create he'll score he's the main man and that the sort of this season was his stage because he's the only signing he's going to be the sort of a standout attacking influence Next season, he's got to up his game because he's going to have other attacking options with him, and it's not going to be all about him. And it's going to be what he can what he can do to raise his game next season. So he was a, a surprise in terms of the fact that it's a new league for him. Um, he's got a lot of pressure on his shoulders. He's filling the void left by one of the Premier League's best ever players, and I think he stepped up to the mark completely. Yeah, I've got to agree. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Pulisic, and he had injuries, and it took him a while. 
but I think second half of the season he's he's really come into um, come into his own and he's one of the first names on the team sheet for Chelsea. I think he just over the season maybe wasn't at his best and he did have injuries, but he's definitely uh, improved as time's gone on and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next season in a, in a Chelsea shirt in that really exciting forward line that they're going to have. So that, of course, is for next season. So, Cam, I think that, that wraps up our Premier League review for 2019-2020. If you uh, listen to our Premier League predictions at the start of the season, we've got a bit of a treat for you coming next week where we're going to be listening back to the predictions that we made and then reacting and just thinking how right or how drastically wrong we got those. But until then, that's another podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Under the Lights, looking back at what's been a, a unique and very, very long season. If you want to send any questions or any any comments at all to the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at under underscore saints. You can find me on Twitter at T214Murray. Yeah, and I'm at Callum Wilson 21. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Under the Lights and stay safe.